0: Hello everyone, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Becky Strapelsovers, one of your hosts on the New Books Network. Today we're joined by Jacob Abel, Assistant Professor of French at Baylor University, and we'll be discussing his new book, Spiritual and Material Boundaries in Old French Verse, Contemplating the Walls of the Earthly Paradise, which is out now from Medieval Institute Publications and DeGroiter. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jake.
1: Thanks for having me, it's good to be here.
0: Awesome, excited to talk about the book. Can, to, to start with, can you just briefly tell us about the book?
1: Absolutely. So uh, this is a book that is intended to do two things. The first is it is a comparison of three strikingly similar descriptions of jeweled walls in three old French poems. Um, and those poems are The Voyage of St. Brendan Abbott, um, which is a er- very early Anglo-Norman poem coming out of the medieval French world. Uh, And then leaving a little bit later to the end of the 12th century, we have Marie de France's Purgatory of St. Patrick. Uh, And then we leap forward a bit um, to William of Loris's unfinished uh, beginning of the Romance of the Rose. And the, the book really started with just the observation that there were these three very similar descriptions, especially in the first two poems of these Um, jewel-encrusted walls of the earthly paradise, um, or in the case of The Romance of the Rose, something very much like an earthly paradise. Um, And I was just working off that similarity, which was intriguing at a kind of philological level, right? What's that about? Why this recurring description? Why is it so similar? And over time, getting into the research more and more deeply, I realized there was so much going on uh, behind that similarity, and it opened up onto Radical medieval conceptions of economics, of what it means to live in solidarity, of what it means to share risk. Uh, And the book is really about sort of unfolding that connection. How do we get in these poems from these shared descriptions of gems on a wall um, to these implicit discourses about uh, what it means to live together, share goods in common?
0: Oh, wow, that is a, that is a lot to come from jeweled walls. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, kind of uh, continuing from that, this I've noticed this is a really wide ranging book, and you uh, alluded a little bit to this in your answer. Um, you know, you treat everything from literary depictions of material objects and structures to biblical images of idealized community. Uh, you bring in concepts like cognitive self reflexivity and social intimacy. How do you kind of draw all of these things together? That's such a wide range of, of topics to have in one monograph.
1: Right. So when I think about the medieval texts and these poems that I get to work on in my work, I really let the questions that I have about these works drive the agenda um, rather than a particular kind of methodology. And what that means to me is just I'm sort of on a treasure hunt to try and pursue these these questions I'm very passionate about that I bring to these texts and that I think these texts bring to me and these questions don't respect disciplinary boundaries right you know when uh, when you come to any text of any age you know I think oftentimes what interests any of us most academically or otherwise is is going to be something that requires us to think about a lot of different things at the same time and so for me the kind of hyper multidisciplinary approach of the book was not a kind of self-conscious methodological approach, right? It wasn't as if I sat down at the outset and said, oh, this is going to be a project that will, you know, have me reading ninth century Frankish sermons, you know, on certain passages of scripture, or I'm going to learn a lot about, you know, gym theory in the Middle Ages. You know, I, I learned all that as I went because the questions just kept taking me there. And in that way, it was a really exciting and rewarding kind of project uh, because, you know, I kept having to open up more doors than I thought I would on the front end. Uh, but again, in a way that was always animated by the sort of thematic questions I was asking.
0: Mm, It's an exciting way to approach a a big project like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
0: Well, let's, let's go back before we get too, uh, too far um, into the book, I guess. Let's go back to those texts that you, that you mentioned. So the book focuses on two medieval French poems uh, that portray the uh, quote-unquote earthly paradise as the destination of quest narratives. And then um, that's the voyage of St. Brendan the Abbot and the, the purgatory of St. Patrick, as well as the romance of the rose. So you um, t- told us a little bit about those texts. Can you tell us a little bit more about them, about these three poems that you analyzed throughout the work?
1: Absolutely. So the earliest of these, The Voyage of St. Brendan the Abbot, right, is one of the very earliest sort of narrative texts that we have in Anglo-Norman, and by extension in medieval French more broadly. So it's old, and it is itself a translation of an older Latin story uh, about St. Brendan the Abbot. And it's worth emphasizing two things. One is that, of course, the genre of translation was extremely common in medieval literature, right, as many folks are aware. Uh, And as many folks know, that almost never meant just translating text word for word, right, in this case from Latin to French. There there is extrapolation and change, and that's what makes this so exciting. Um, So while I don't deal with the Latin source in my book, one of the things that is exciting that I draw to readers' attention is that the the earthly paradise episode of the Brendan story is an innovation on the part of the anglo norman writer. And, uh, and that, that was one of the initial things that sort of set my interest in this portion of the book at the very end. Um, the thing I would say about it that folks who don't know the story should know is it's a really exciting quest story, right? It's, it's the story of this you know, founding saint of the Irish tradition, right, Saint Brendan, uh, who in this sort of mythic hagiography is um, setting out on the seas with a group of monks. And their goal is to find the earthly paradise. And, uh, you know, the, the text doesn't give you a whole lot of information about what that is. You know, you would have had to have brought that with you. But part of why I think that's important is because uh, Brendan himself gets very surprised by what he finds there. Uh, it, it really betrays a lot of his own expectations as a character within the story. And the motives that he has for getting there are very different by the time he gets there than at the outset. And that's really true, too, of the second poem, the one by Marie de France, The Purgatory of St. Patrick, which unlike a a monk, we have a knight who's a protagonist here who gets set up by a bunch of monks to go down into this pit in Ireland and cross purgatory as indeed a purgative action. He's going to go atone for some sins that are unnamed but are said to be very grievous. So he is not in pursuit of the earthly paradise, unlike uh, his predecessor, Brendan, but he gets there anyway. So in the earlier poem, the earthly paradise is this explicit goal of a maritime voyage. We're going to go out, we're going to risk the high seas and find this place called the earthly paradise. In this later poem, coming toward the end of the 12th century, uh, the earthly paradise is a big old narrative surprise, right? This knight finds it at the end of this, you know, beleaguered journey through purgatory. And that's why I was so fascinated by in these relatively different poems, one, you know, starring a knight, and one a monk the terrain that they traverse is very different in their quests. They both get to not just a nominally similar place, the earthly paradise, uh, but there are these gem encrusted walls there. Um, and we'll you know have ample opportunity to talk about that, but I'll wrap up this intro by saying that when we get to the romance of the rose, which is a much later poem, That is not a quest journey, of course, through purgatory, uh, or across the high seas, right? This is a highly sort of allegorized story in which you have this dreaming male lover, who's encountering all of these different sort of tropes and figures of courtly life. And scholars have spilled a whole lot of ink and blood trying to, you know, of course, you know, untether all of the sort of mysteries of the complex arrangement of all these figures. Um, And I'm certainly not a romance of the Rose scholar, but I got very interested in the poem for my project, because Um, The dreaming subject at the beginning rather than the end of his quest encounters this wall uh, to the Garden of Delights where the action of the poem will take place. And the way that the walls are described are highly redolent of these earlier walls from these these earlier anglo Norman French poems. And so the last part of my book gets interested in this sort of afterlife of gem encrusted walls from these earlier poems in this later better known medieval story.
0: Now, this this may not uh, be a question. It sounds like it's not a question with a simple answer. <laughs> um, could, do you want to talk a little bit about what the earthly paradise is? Maybe in in these texts. I mean, it sounds like it is a place you can go, um, but is it only a real place? Is it metaphorical? Is it? it sounds like there's a lot to unpack there.
1: And absolutely. And I spend you know most of my introduction in the book doing exactly that. You know, I try to set the stage for folks to understand a bit about the history of the earthly paradise in literature, in religious discourse, um, to try to kind of set the scene for these poems and the complex cultural scene, you know, on which they're playing out their particular versions of this story. So what is the earthly paradise? Well, it is this kind of emergent geography. And much like purgatory, it's a geography that emerges in this very, you know, fits and starts kind of way over many centuries, right, from late antiquity into the Middle Ages. So the story of the earthly paradise is, as you <laughs> suggest, it's very complex. Um, but there's a couple of high points that I think are, are probably interested for for folks, um, regardless of their investment in the Middle Ages. The first is to say it is... Yes, it is a geography, as you say, that at least in a certain literary tradition suggests it's a place you can go. But to the extent that you can go there, it's really, really hard to get there. You don't, you don't do that normally, right? If you, if you live in medieval England, it's not like going to France, right? Um, in fact, it's not like going anywhere. It's, it is only one step more, or excuse me, one step less extraordinary than getting to what we would think of as heaven, which is to say the celestial paradise, so this is a distinction that you see in a range of text that's really crystallizing with these two older medieval French poems. Um, what, you know, we sort of in modern consciousness would think of as, as heaven, as a kind of religious category, gets chopped up into two in this world, right? So you have the celestial paradise, and that's sort of where God is in his heaven with his angels. It's, it's you know, really, really heaven. And then you have the the earthly paradise, Um, Which is sort of this liminal boundary between the world you and I are in, where this podcast is happening, and that higher heaven where God exists with, you know, all his angels. And, you know, the other thing that's worth noting is that there's this emergent idea that the earthly paradise is also the Garden of Eden. So it is the place where Adam and Eve, right, ate ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, made their big mistake, committed the, you know, the original sin of humanity, and were therefore cast out. And so the idea here in part is the earthly paradise is a kind of vestigial organ of human origins, right? It's a place we come from, but which we can't really go to again, unless you can, right? That's where we get to these poems, right? They are quest narratives. So if you want to try to regain the ancestral home of humanity for these medieval writers, well, that's, that's a quest. You're going to have to risk your life, right? In the case of of both Owen and Brendan, you might have to risk your soul too. There's the possibility that you might get ensnared in purgatory or hell or somewhere in between, right? Um, it's a very complex cosmos, right? That doesn't reduce to this sort of three-story heaven, earth, hell, you know? But all this by way of saying the earthly paradise is sort of two things at once. It's a kind of symbol of the end of of time and the human story for this medieval Christian culture. Um, you know, in, in the jargon of medieval theology, would say it's an eschatological category, right? It's thinking about the end of all things, right? That, that paradise that is sort of knocking on the door of heaven in the highest sense. But it also harkens back to origins and to beginnings and that place humanity came from. And so if you're going to try to go to the earthly paradise, whether you're a knight seeking forgiveness for sins or whether you're a monk who's looking for spiritual edification, you're going to have to risk um, everything to get there. But if you do, you might just incur some kind of spiritual goal um, that is highly salient and salutary and good for you. So that's the kind of risk and wager of trying to get to this mythical place.
0: So uh, you said St. Brendan is is actively looking, trying to get there. Um, now, uh, I'm sorry if I missed this in your earlier explanation. In the Purgatory of St. Patrick, the night is on, it also kind of ends up there. Did you say that the monks specifically send him to find the earthly paradise, or do they send him on a quest and he accidentally finds it?
1: <laughs> no, great question. So you're right that in, this, in the case of the second poem, uh, the Purgatory of St. Patrick, Uh, the knight, whose name is Owen. Uh, The the text is interestingly named for the figure of St. Patrick, who figures prominently in the prologue um, and and is this sort of important spiritual presence, Um, but he's a very minor character in the story. It's really about this knight named Owen, right? So yes, to answer your question, Owen the knight is the one who's totally surprised by finding the earthly paradise. He has no indication that that's something that's gonna be there as the fruit of his quest through purgatory. Right, his ostensible goal is just to pass through the pains of purgatory for the expiation of sins, and that's that contrasts uh, to your point with Brendan in the earlier poem, who is actively looking for the earthly paradise. And and to get to that second part of your question about you know well from whence the goal, he very much seems to, to generate it him himself within his own piety. He's he is an abbot, right? He this is the voyage of Saint Brendan, the abbot, so he has real spiritual authority within his his early monastic community, and he seems to be the one who's the engine behind taking on this quest. And then it's other monks who succor themselves to him and say, hey, can we come too? And you know, he, he takes some of them after, after some trials, and not everybody makes the cut.
0: Do we get any, I suppose, does the text of uh, the Purgatory of St. Patrick's, do we find out how the knight found the earthly paradise if he wasn't looking for it and kind of was surprised by it? Why yes. why is he able to find it what does that mean
1: right so we do and uh there's there's some fascinating scholarship that reflects on exactly this question of the kind of what does the geography look like at that penultimate point in his quest when he's passed through all the the pain of purgatory and finds himself at the earthly paradise and the way he gets there is on this long narrow bridge um and again i don't treat this in my book in part because there's been a lot of really interesting scholarship on this already on sort of all of the different, you know, metaphorical and literal meanings of this bridge, right, of making this crossing from purgatory into uh, into the earthly paradise. Um, but at one level, the symbolism is fairly obvious, right? He, he definitively leaves purgatory, which has been this place of trial, of pain, of, of suffering, of risk, and crosses, you know, into this fundamentally different territory. But it also suggests a kind of continuity, right? You know, he gets done with uh, with Purgatory, and the you you, you cross this bridge. It's, it seems to be sort of what you do when you get there, at least if you're a visitor like he is. Um, and this is probably a good opportunity to, to have a sidebar and say, you know, there's probably more than a few listeners that keep thinking, wait, doesn't Dante have an earthly paradise in the end of the Purgatory, right? This is all sounding like obliquely similar, but maybe a little different. And, you know, just to give a shout out to Dante, you know, the answer there is yes. You know, of course, if anybody knows about the earthly paradise who doesn't study it, you probably know it from the Divine Comedy. Because at the end of the Purgatory, of course, Dante famously gets to the top of Purgatory, which Dante configures as a mountain rather than as a subterranean pit in Marie de France's earlier poem. Um, But in both cases, the earthly paradise is at the end. Um Now, the question of Dante's sort of philological debt to Marie de France, that's a fascinating and vexed question, um, but it's really exciting to think about. And I bring this up just to say, you know, Dante does popularize this image a bit later, right when he's writing um, in the early 14th century. But uh, I bring up the comparison just to say in both cases, it seems to be that when you get to the end of purgatory as a visitor, um, particularly, then the reward for the sort of spiritual purgation you've undergone is to come into this, this country that is marked by the absence of all that pain and all those trials that you went through.
0: What happens to the night after that? Yeah. So <laughs> he like a, he a, hasn't night. died, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean it's the same kind of problem that that again, Dante the pilgrim, is always having to deal with in the divine comedy, right? It's like he's. He's not dead and all the souls who encounter him are looking at him and going, who is this guy? What is he doing here? This, this seems to break the rules. And, you know, Virgil in particular in the first two thirds of the poem has to constantly give this stump speech like, no, it's OK. He's with me. You know, God wills to deal with it. It's OK. Um, and, you know, what happens here in the with the night is actually the same thing in the most general sense that happens with Brendan. They both get this brief experience of the earthly paradise. It's slightly more elaborate in Marie de France's poem. But in both cases, it's a wonderful experience, right? It brings all of this pleasure and joy. And I talk a lot about both the pleasure and joy of the earthly paradise in the book. And of course, what happens with both of them is they want to stay, right? And and there's a sense in which, oh, why would I leave? You know, I'm, I'm sort of, I found myself in this place of, you know, ultimate beauty and goodness and indeed different forms of kinship that are either implicit or explicit, uh, which is sort of tapping again on one of the big themes in my book, but in both cases, to your point, they've got to go back to the mundane world, right? They, there is this sense that while you technically can get here while you're alive, you really shouldn't be here, right? You shouldn't stay here. It can perform a valuable function in in your life and in your story, but you've got to go back. And and of course, the idea is you'll get back here by other means, right? You'll, you'll come back the right way later when you're dead. Um, and, and that's what ends up having to happen to both of them.
0: Hmm, that's fascinating. Just yeah. get to see it and then go back to your normal life.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, and actually, Becky, if I could, there's one other really salient point to your question about the end of the night story in the Marie de France poem. And, it, and it's and it's dark and it's something that I talk about at some length in my book. So the night comes back and we're told, how does he respond to this new experience of social intimacy and community and having worked through his personal sins well, he goes to Jerusalem, and it seems pretty unambiguous in the text that he goes on crusade. And of course, especially those of us who are modern readers, there's something more than a little troubling about that, right? That his response to this journey of edification is to co commit violence against black and brown bodies in Palestine. Um, and so I talk about this right in the book, and there are certain scholars who've made the case that the language in the poem opens up the possibility that he goes on a pilgrimage that's nonviolent. It is ambiguous, but I think we have to reckon with the. The sort of trace of violence there in the afterlife of his visit to the earthly paradise. And it's actually that sort of ambiguity that set me on stumbling on the big theme of the last part of the book, which starts to talk about this question of the different afterlives of the earthly paradise, much of which was quite violent in the early modern era and in the era of colonization. Um, In contrast to the Brendan story, which is very much about Brendan learning sort of the art of dispossession, of taking on risk and solidarity with others rather than, you know, committing acts of violence or trying to seize or claim hold of bodies or power or land. Um, so other things we can discuss, but I just did want to make that distinction to the way that the night story leads into some darker territory.
0: Um the the sort of afterlives that you mentioned and and getting towards the end of the book, is that where you then bring in the romance of the rose and and how do you kind of go from those two earlier poems to uh, to the Romance of the Rose,
1: right. So, in the case of the Romance of the Rose, you know what's what's fascinating is again the the ekphrastic description of all these images right on the the walls of the Garden of Delights in the in the dream of the lover. You know there there are several textual cues um, in the details that if you've been immersed in these descriptions of earlier gem encrusted walls, you go, hey, wait a minute, this sounds. Really similar, like this is sort of calling out distantly to these earlier poems. Now, I'm certainly not trying to make some philological case here that oh, now we know with certainty that you know William of Loris was engaging these earlier texts. Of course, we don't know, but I'm sort of of the opinion that we don't need to know these things to meaningfully speculate. Right, the sort of proof is in the pudding. What can we learn from the comparison, regardless? And so that's what led me to the the third main chapter of the book and. You know, in the earlier chapters, I really talk a lot about the earthly paradise as this apocalyptic community. Um, And there's lots that we can say about that. But what that all amounts to is to say that these earlier poems are deeply engaged with biblical intertext. They're they're engaged with descriptions of the community that lives with their goods in common in the, the book of Acts in the New Testament, where you have this image of the ideal Christian community in this form of sort of voluntarily living with material goods in common and shared risk. Um, There are images from the book of Revelation from the New Testament, right, that are are sort of similarly imagining a a beloved community of solidarity in opposition to the wealth of richness and colonization, which is explicitly connected up with the image of Babylon um, in, in the book of Revelation. So there's this you know, kind of topos of solidarity, this, this sense of we're all in this together in the ideal community that attaches itself to the earthly paradise in these earlier poems. Now in the William of Laura's poem, I argue that all that basically goes out the window and you have something like the, the opposite. You have what I call in the book, you know, the, the anti-apocalyptic um, image uh, of paradise there where rather than the sort of protagonist being drawn ecstatically out of his self into these communities of solidarity, you get a protagonist who just seems to fall deeper and deeper into the abyss of himself, right? And, you know, that's why I talk a lot in that chapter about the oft-discussed passage of, of the Mirror of Narcissus, you know, where he gazes into this mirror and tumbles into it and the rest of the poem sort of happens from within the mirror and this landscape, it opens up. And that's a really well-trod passage in scholarship, you know, where angels fear to tread. But I I get into it just long enough to say, you know, regardless of how we interpret these moments in the, the romance of the rose, it's really interesting that these tropes of jewels um, that are calling out to the same biblical traditions from these earlier poems, they really amount to a kind of opposite narrative trajectory than the earlier poems, um, right? It's, it's, you're not being called out into this community of sharing and shared risk. You're, you're sort of falling more and more deeper into your own desires um, and sometimes at violent risk to others. And again, that's where, you know, I cite others who have, you know, talked a lot about the, the different forms of violence that are both implicit and explicit in the romance of the rose, right? There's this kind of will to power to dominate the, the rose, which is this ambiguous female subject. Is it his lover? Is it a you know, symbol of feminine love? We don't know. But um, all that to say, that same kind of trace of violence that you see in the knight's efforts to go on crusade. You know, my argument is you see a kind of a different version of that in William of Loris's poem where, you know, the subject in other contexts and towards other ends is nevertheless sort of oriented toward questions of power and trying to gain and secure things for himself in opposition to the Brendan story, which of the three seems to be alone um, in sort of the way that it escapes that association of earthly paradise and conquest.
0: Um, I, I have two different directions I want to go in here, so we'll just pick one and, and start. Um, sure. the, you know, we talked a few times about the, the gem encrusted walls and talked about learning about gem. Did you say gem theory in the middle ages? And yes. do you wanna just talk a little bit about what's going on with these gems and these walls.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, this is Uh, an area of uh, sort of medieval studies and medieval culture that I knew nothing about before I undertook the research of this project. And it just became increasingly necessary and compelling to be able to explore the different kinds of cultural significance that gems and jewels had. Um, And I should say, I, I don't get too deep into these weeds in the book, but there's, for the people who really work on gem theory, you know, there's even these distinctions between gems and jewels, right? And these other signifiers, but I'll use them interchangeably here. The I can summarize a couple things. The first is they have theological value for the Christian cultures in which these stories are being written. So if you, if you wind the clock back as I do in the book, and you look at really early Frankish sermons about the gems on the walls of, of the new Jerusalem in Revelation, uh, what you find is this really interesting um, effort to associate the particular gems with different virtues that are connected up with Christ's apostles right? So, uh, ah, the ruby represents this, and this is a quality of the spirit that we should have in Christ. And, you know, the sapphire represents this, and and the emerald represents this. So, um, not unsurprisingly, there's allegorical value here that's connected up with Christ as God, and Christ as an agent that's designed to, uh, to sanctify the soul of the Christian believer, right? So, I get into the weeds with some of these sermons and you know, how these gems are interpreted as signs of these spiritual qualities. Uh, But then there's a separate tradition that is both kind of economic and medical uh, and commercial. So uh, you get lapidaries, which is a genre of writing that is the word suggests uh, from lapidus is all about, you know, gems, rock, stones, jewels, precious metals. And in these kinds of documents, you have medieval writers, both in Latin, old French and other languages, who are Trying to expound the different qualities and properties of these things in a sort of scientific or pseudoscientific way. Um, so I deal with some of these documents that were um, in vogue in the, in the century and even the decades leading right up to the literary production of the Brendan story. So part of my argument in the book is, you know, other folks before me had sort of noticed in passing, oh, interesting. There's this kind of similarity between the gems on the Brendan wall in that story and the gems in the New Jerusalem in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? But nobody had really stopped to elaborate a study that asked what that meant or why, you know, what was what was the purpose of that um, engagement there with the biblical text. And that's why I go in the direction of these sermons on the one hand and these lapidaries on the other. And in the case of the lapidaries, it's, it's all the delightful stuff you would think for the Middle Ages. So on the one hand, stones had healing properties. So um, certain things are are said to be helpful for everything from hemorrhoids to fever, right? And uh, in some cases, you take a gem and you make a wash with it. And when it encounters your eyes, it'll bring about healing effects. Um, You know, in other cases, um, there's celebration of the beauty and the economic value. Um, And that's where there is a, a real need to talk about the exotic with these gems, because they're also always associated, right, with places that are very far away, right? Uh, In partis arabis, right? Like in Arab regions or lands or in India or Ethiopia. Um, And of course, medievalists know that's kind of, that's your big three, right? For the way that Western Latin writers tend to construe the other out there beyond the known world, right? It's India, Ethiopia, and Arabia, um, which are of course othered in all these troubling kinds of ways. Uh, And that happens in these lapidaries too. But to summarize on the one hand, you've got these texts that are interested in what's the value of these things um, in a kind of economic way? How can they heal us? Do they do things for our bodies that are helpful? And on the other hand, you have a theological tradition that says, yeah, what do gems and jewels signify for the Christian believer about the soul and its relationship to God?
0: Very cool. Do you see um, those those gems and those walls kind of operating like similarly in all three of these texts? Or do you think they kind of Um, The different texts maybe emphasize different of those aspects you're talking about, whether it's theological or economic or alchemical or whatever.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in one way, I think that the romance of the rose is the outlier here. And, you know, I I do some work to say, hey, I think that, you know, again, a lot of these tropes are are sort of being inverted um, or at the very least are not being engaged um, in a way that you see as clearly, certainly in that theological tradition, that homiletic tradition that I just talked about. Um, in the case of the earlier two poems, there is a whole lot of similarity, I argue, but there's there's a key difference, as you say, an emphasis. And so in the case of the Brendan poem, I, I talk a lot about how the the gems in the walls of paradise are actually the end of a story that's happening throughout the narrative about precious metals and objects. So when we get to the earthly paradise and see these walls, that's not the first time that you've encountered precious stones in the story. Uh, In fact, it's the third. Um, And once again, this is something that sort of a couple of scholars sort of noticed in passing, but not drawn out to think about the sort of broader significance economically and theologically of gems and jewels in the poem. So the first time that you see him in the Brendan story is on the Isle of Elba, where you get this pattern where Brendan and his monks will stumble on an abandoned place they, they need to take shelter after a time on the high seas. They need to find food. They got to find drink. And what happens again and again is Brendan, as the austere abbot, will say things like, take only what you need for your survival, um, even in places that are clearly abandoned, like this castle on the Isle of Elba. And you might think, well, it seems like a really stern guy. I mean, there's some people sort of hanging on for survival. Why can't they just take what they need? And what becomes clear is that this is really about the monastic father making sure that his brothers are not taking things that might belong to others, that might be serving the survival of others. So even if the island looks uninhabited, you don't know, right? Um, and it's that ambiguity um, that, that calls for that restraint. Um, and in fact, on that island, they do end up, inca- it is inhabited. There's a small group of monks like them who take them in With typical Benedictine hospitality and there's this really crucial moment in that scene where one of the monks who's their host says you know what god actually takes care of all our needs here all our our food and drink and stuff and because of that we have no servants here and that's a really key line that i sort of draw out for the whole topos here of gems in the story because the idea is um that uh these um these monks are not exploiting others right, through practices of labor. And and there are gems on that island in their monastery, but they're on the gospel book as a liturgical prop up on the altar. They're not gems that are in any kind of economic circulation that they might use to buy and sell or subjugate others on the basis of hoarded wealth, right? Um, and I realize I've conflated these two instances. What I just described with the monks, that's the second instance before the earthly paradise. The first is when we get to this abandoned castle and you have – Um, You know, uh, a golden golden mug, uh, a goblet, an anapdor, among other kinds of finery of gems and jewels, a couple of which specifically prefigure the gems we're going to see on the walls of the earthly paradise. And Brendan says, don't take any of this stuff, right? It's not ours. Don't take it. Well, of course, one of the monks in the night gets tempted by none other than Satan himself, who pops up and says, take it, take it. And, uh, And of course he does. And what happens is Brendan, you know basically in this kind of Hamlet move, staging a play within a play, gets the conscience of the monk. He gets him to out himself and say, oh, I did it. I took the monk, getting the mug. I'm so sorry. And Brendan says, well, you're going to die this very day. But the good news is because of your confession, um, you're not going to go to hell. That's the good news, right? Uh, come on. And indeed, the monk does die and his soul is received into heaven. And again, what could seem like just this kind of bizarre story about medieval religious austerity, I argue is, is about this sort of unfolding story about what are gems as a source of wealth, right? Is wealth something you keep as private possession that you hoard for yourself? And of course, the rule of St. Benedict would have governed these monks' lives in this imagined world, explicitly forbids private property. But what I'm arguing in the book is Brendan goes further in this story, and, and the writer is showing us what that's about, what animates that prohibition of private property in part, it's not just about the sort of piety of the the monk subject. It's not just look at me, I don't have any goods. It's if I have goods, especially goods like precious stones that people fight over, that have these economic values as currency, I don't know whom I'm exploiting by keeping these as private property, right? And that's why when we get to the walls of the earthly paradise, it's just like the new Jerusalem in, in the Bible. It's a place where gems are everywhere but they're on the walls and in the streets, which is not a place you put gems and jewels if you want to, use them to spend them on stuff, right? It's to take them out of economic circulation. Um, so that's the dominant thing that's happening there. Um, and I'll say much more quickly in 30 seconds that the difference in the, in the Patrick story, it's all about the Holy Spirit um, as the third person of the Trinity in medieval theology. When we get to the earthly paradise, the beauty of the gems is connected up with the beauty of, of all of these other things in the earthly paradise. and Marie de France is laying these lexical clues in the way she repeats words and tropes. So it's the beauty of these gems which leads to the beauty of the finery of these ethereal monks that seem to live inside as souls and take care of the place. And it's the beauty of all of these things. And then it's the beauty of the light of the celestial paradise. And in the moment that Patrick looks up at it, there's this cataclysmic moment where the Holy Spirit breaks forth from the highest heaven and comes down like flaming gold it says into the minds, into the heads of all of these sort of Cistercian monastic shades in this place and Patrick himself. And what happens there is um, we're calling out to a different biblical text here. This is less about Revelation. This is much more about the Pentecost story in Acts, right, where you know, the disciples of Jesus, you know, after his death are sort of visited by these tongues of fire, and this is the advent of the Holy Spirit. Well, no surprise here, that story also ends up being a lot about creating new forms of intimacy and community. And in fact, that story eventuates in, it ends in the passage into the story of that first apostolic community that lives um, holding all their goods in common, right? So, My argument ends up being, well, there's two different biblical intertexts in play in the Brennan story and in the Patrick story, but they both end up getting us back to this theology of the earthly paradise as a place of sharing and shared solidarity. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that story about Brennan really does um, kind of emphasize or or underline maybe the way you described earlier. It's sort of working against those more, um, uh, the threads of like colonization that come in with the later examples you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't take these things because you don't even know who might need them is so different than <laughs> what right? is happening with colonial powers. Yeah. That's Absolutely.
1: And, and it really, you know, throws into relief the contrast with, you know, you know, Columbus another architects of uh, the colonial era, right? These are figures who are explicitly invoking the earthly paradise, right? As a category that, that they're receiving from the Middle Ages. But you know, to your point, my argument in the book is they're doing something entirely opposite uh, with that than what these medieval writers are doing, especially the Brendan story.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really that's fascinating. Um, the other. Road I wanted to go down. The gem thing was one thing. The other one is is uh, more theoretical. You talked a little bit about you know your the, the kind of methodology you followed was just questions, right? Following questions, um, and you also said as you started working on *Romance of the Rose*, you know we we can we can speculate. Um, i can't remember quite the phrase that you said but you know we can speculate so you do say in your in your last chapter you say that you shift from a a more historical and intertextual mode of analysis to a more speculative approach and so i'm just wondering um why make this shift and and what do you end up speculating that maybe you maybe you think you know um we can't quite prove this but it's it's fine to speculate what is that speculation? Why is it important to, to move to that speculative way of thinking?
1: You know, I often will uh, have my students read the prologue of the Lays of Marie de France uh, in different kinds of courses, which I was really privileged to get to read with some of my mentors um, in classes uh, when I was an undergraduate. And, you know, this prologue is fascinating because Marie de France, who, again, wrote this second poem that, that I treat, The Purgatory of St. Patrick, she says in the prologue to this other work that, you know, it was ancient, or excuse me, it was customary for the ancients, just Prishan testifies to this, to express themselves very obscurely so that future generations would have to gloss the text and put the finishing touches to their meaning. And what I try and draw out with students, again, as mentors of mine drew out with me in the classroom 15 years ago, is this idea that this medieval writer, could not be saying something more postmodern if she tried, right? She's, she's explicitly giving meaning to the future, right? Um, and, and is saying, hey, you know, there's something about how we make meaning with texts um, that is a kind of literary seance, right? We're kind of summoning the dead, and we're, but we, and, and we talk to, they don't just talk to us, we get to talk to them and we talk back, right? That, that sometimes the, the deepest meaning or value of a text is something that the future will discover. And, and so to me, when I sort of think in a more speculative mode about the value of some of these poems for contemporary questions in ethics, politics, culture, I, I just think that in that moment, I hope I'm doing something that Marie de France would totally validate and, you know, and say, yes, you're doing it. That's how I wanted these poems to be received. Um, You know, I don't think oftentimes these medieval writers are, are asking us to treat these texts um, in a way that ossifies them in their own past, right? There's all these invitations to, you know, take up and do something with them. Um, because, of course, that's that's what these texts are doing. You know, Marie de France is engaged with ancient sources, both, you know, Christian and non-Christian, and, and is dramatically reinventing them in ways that would be incredibly innovative for, for her time. And so that's the sense in which I think the Middle Ages themselves... Give uh, scholars the justification to take a more daring, speculative approach with medieval materials. I think we're we're in some sense doing nothing other than responsibly answering the call that medieval poets give to us. Um, so that's one thing I would say. And then in terms of the content of of sort of what am I speculating about? You know, in in this book, I became more and more interested in two things. The first is the way in which the sort of implicit idea here about the earthly paradise as this symbol for what it means to live together, to share in solidarity, even as just a mythic ideal, if not something that's lived out in history, that it fascinated me because it's a way of thinking about ethics and aesthetics together in a really intimate way. And what I mean by that is just, it's it's a way of thinking about beauty, right? The beauty of these, these gems as something that can actually signify the kind of you know, goodness and ideas about justice that are inside the walls. So I spend a lot of time in the book sort of talking about this idea of continuity between aesthetic beauty in these stories and sort of ethical beauty and in, in within the walls of the earthly paradise. And, you know, in my mind, you know, this is for these medieval sources, this is hearkening back in broad strokes to a tradition coming out of both Plato and Aristotle, um, that also has biblical roots in its own way, of sort of thinking about the, the intimate association of beauty and goodness is metaphysical transcendentals. Um, and I think in their own time, that's how they would have sort of understood this, that intimacy between what does it mean to do what is good or just in the world? And what does it mean to evaluate beauty? Um, those are not two questions we're in the habit of sort of thinking about together in a lot of culture, right? Popular, academic, or otherwise. And, um, and sometimes for very good and salient reasons. But I became really interested in sort of working with different philosophical voices that were in our time or or near to our time, thinking about resourcing this connection between ethics and aesthetics, right? What it means to think about what is beautiful in, in some subtle sense and what is good and good to do in human conduct on the other. And that's where in the last chapter, I get into the weeds with Iris Murdoch, you know, who's a 20th century philosopher and novelist and, you know, wrote incredible work as a philosopher and, who I've always been fond of because she is the sort of person who is trying to sort of vivify that connection, revivify that connection between thinking about aesthetics and ethics, right? That this isn't some arbitrary connection we're smashing together, um, but that there's actually really fruitful ways to think about this. Um, and so I, I invoke a number of her writings to try and allow these earlier poems to speak to contemporary ethical questions. And in particular, I, I raise some openings about how the Brendan story can speak to the global refugee crisis in our time. You know, the Brendan story is one that imagines a group of ragtag monks, you know, on the high seas as displaced maritime folk who are trying to find clemency in a foreign land. And, you know, of course, the major difference there is they elect for this. They choose this right from a posture of comfort. Right. And I spend a lot of time unpacking that difference. Um, but there's a really important way in which this story about sharing and solidarity um particularly as it impacts and affects people who again are sort of seeking a new country and safety there i think can really speak to our time and the international refugee crisis that um, is so connected up with the the ocean and the seas and and maritime travel in our time and all the danger and injustice that attends that Uh, so in the last part of the book um, i'm interested in thinking about okay what if anything Does this connection of ethics and aesthetics from these poems, what can it say to contemporary questions about how we become active responders to um, the plight of refugees in our time? And and that becomes the sort of question that I unpack in the last part of the book.
0: There's Just so much going on in this book. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, so you obviously, you've talked about how you had to learn things you had never known anything about, um, which, I mean, every time you go into a, a big project like this, that you're going to end up doing that, of course. Um, but did is there something maybe you haven't quite touched on yet that, you know, you learned while you were working on the book that was that you found surprising or unexpected? There might be a few things you already had mentioned, but anything else that hasn't come up yet?
1: You know, I think that uh, something that wasn't entirely new, but I gained just a whole new level of appreciation for is the degree to which the sort of you know, medieval Christian world in this specifically Old French context that I'm dealing with the way in which that world had such a complex sense of of geography, right, in, in both mundane and, and more metaphorical and spiritual senses, right? I mean, I think um, when when folks, you know, in and out of the academy, you know, tend to sort of think about um, sort of maybe ancient or medieval Christian beliefs about afterlife, let's say. you know I think most folks would probably respond with some sense of, oh yeah, okay, so folks thought you had heaven and that's the good place, right? That's where you go if, if, if it all worked out. You've got hell, that's the bad place and we're here in the middle on planet Earth. And uh, of course, you only need to read the Divine Comedy to have some sense of the limits of that description of sort of medieval cultural beliefs about this stuff. But I was just consistently fascinated by the the detail and the breadth and the depth of all of these layers of the cosmos for these medieval folk, right? And the way in which you have the earthly paradise, the celestial paradise, purgatory. Purgatory is underground on the earth. Purgatory is above the ground. Um, You know, uh, hell, uh, different degrees of hell. Uh, Purgatory that seems a lot like hell in Marie de France. Purgatory that seems much closer to heaven in Dante. And so uh, I just became fascinated with the, the, the differentiation and the detail with which these medieval poets were sort of construing the cosmos and populating it with all of these different layers and levels um, that if you think about, um, as I like to think about in this book, you know, can reveal, I think, some really interesting ideas about how they saw themselves in the world.
0: Yeah. That uh, thinking about just geography generally uh, in the Middle Ages, it's so, it's so fascinating because we, of course, have such a Good idea. The normal person on the street has such a good idea of what our world is like and what other parts of the world are like and where we are on it and, you know, how how tectonic uh, plates work and um, gravity works and all of that kind of thing. And, I mean, people in the Middle Ages, you know, generally, I think, knew more about that kind of scientific stuff than a lot of people think they did. You know, they didn't think the world was flat, etc. But, I mean there was so much that was unknown. And the way that imagination and and science at the time tried to kind of fill that in, it's like a way of thinking about the world. And as you said, like our place in it, both um, just the the physical world around us, but then also like the metaphysical world that like, I can't quite wrap my brain. And I think probably a lot of any person living today would have trouble kind of wrapping their brain around how to make any of that make sense.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) To your point, I think that you know, you're helping me to realize that part of what fascinates me about studying this kind of material is, for me, if I'm kind of on a mission here, it is to help folks appreciate that these different sort of layers of the cosmos in these different poems... These are not usually just primarily or at all an example of, of sort of bad science, right? Uh, which is how we tend to think about this. Oh, you know, these poor people, you know, who somehow thought that there was this place called purgatory. We we know that's not true now. Um, and of course, there's all kinds of just brazenly false science. In these stories from an empirical perspective, and uh, and that can become quite humorous at times. But I think the point I'm trying to draw out and, and that I hear in your observation, too, is there's always more going on here, right? That The earthly paradise is not just, as to say in the book, a defunct medieval geography that we now know doesn't exist. Of course, it doesn't exist, right? Not in the way that these folks thought it did. Um, but as a really complex cultural signifier that tells us something about what we can hope for for political community that um, tells us something about how we can hope to imagine material economics. It's incredibly potent. And so, you know, I think I'm trying to situate this project in a tradition of folks who are saying, hey, when, when you're looking at pre-modern geographies of any kind, um, yes, it's exciting to make the, the, the kind of empirical scientific comparison between these maps and our maps. Um, but always ask yourself, what are the different layers of cultural and symbolic value that even defunct places had. Um, And you just might surprise yourself with how those things can inform your sense of the map of the world, right? Even if it's not in this literal empirical way. What's going on there?
0: Um, So was there anything that you were not able to include in the book? I always like to give people a chance to talk about these are these are big projects that take up years of people's time. And there are so many interesting things and you you just can't always fit everything in. So was there anything you learned or worked on that you were not able to include in the book but wish that you that you had or that you would like to just I'll give you a space here to talk about?
1: No, I'm pleased to say that I was able to include <laughs> absolutely everything that I wanted to yeah, in this book. Great uh, job. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Uh, I would um, pull almost a random two things out of the bin here. The first is I, I touch a little bit in the book at different junctures on the visual tradition of illuminations and illustrations in the manuscript tradition. But unfortunately, you know, just because of, of space and not able to get into that nearly to the degree that, that I would have wanted to. Um, and intend to in future projects, um, which is, of course, you know how scholarship works, right? we We find the the limits of what we can say in one project and we find what we're going to say next. but um yes, and and I do, again, to some degree engage this, especially with the Brendan story because there there was a low-hanging opportunity there to talk about the the different illustrations of the walls of the New Jerusalem in, in Bibles um in the medieval world around the production of Saint Brendan. And so I think, I position that as sort of another tradition of of gems in the visual tradition in that chapter. But there's so much more to be said and that I'd love to learn and say about the manuscript tradition here. And then the second thing uh, that I'm very eager to explore more in in future projects is to to really explore in more detail what I gesture towards as an opening and conclusion here, which is, again, the specific textual details of this afterlife in the colonial era. (laughs) you know, and again, I, I have colleagues who are early modernists who who work on this and have done incredible work on this and the sort of role of paradise in the thinking of conquistadores and, you know, other architects of the colonial era. Uh, but, you know, as it is, I'm able to sort of frame that uh, generically, uh, you know, in my conclusion here and make these contrasts that we've been talking about. Um, but I wasn't, you know, able for the sake of time and space to you know, elaborate that comparison with the same degree of textual detail to those later sources uh, in the colonial era. So I'm excited to get into that for the next project.
0: Yeah, that is really tantalizing. But that is a whole other book, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) To do that justice. Yeah. Right. So um, what kind of courses do you think would benefit from including this text or pieces of, of the monograph in their reading lists?
1: You know, I often will say that when I'm writing a book, I'm obviously writing for colleagues in my disciplines within medieval studies. But my, my secondary primary audience is definitely my students and students everywhere. So you know, this is a book that I was really fortunate to work on in the company of some really bright minds uh, that, you know, were sort of sharpening the iron of my own thinking around medieval sources. And I say this just to say that I really have structured the book in in a way that I hope will make it appealing to a really diverse range of classroom environments. So on the one hand, if folks are teaching in French language departments and they're teaching a literature survey course, you know, my hope would be that, um, you know, this could be a book at the graduate or undergraduate level that you could assign a chapter of that would correspond to one of these texts. So maybe you've never taught the uh, Purgatory of St. Patrick, but... Um, you know, hopefully my chapter can orient you to a way to do that that will also be exciting for students who, you know, have these questions of post-coloniality on their mind and, you know, the kinds of themes that I'm I'm trying to raise. Um, So that's one option. Of course, I think also, you know, any kind of medieval history and intellectual history course, I think, would benefit certainly colleagues in religious studies um, who are thinking about sort of the history of of paradise of afterlife within christianity or within monotheistic religions more broadly uh, i think i hope would be able to benefit from all or part of this um and then you know for my colleagues in english as well you know i'm often struck at conferences you know by the way in which it's often my colleagues in english who show as much or more interest in these old French sources because of its impact right on the on the English tradition and English history. and I love that. And so you know this book is definitely written with with those colleagues and their classes in mind as well um, and And then the last thing I would say is I would hope that this is a book that might also find its way you know onto a syllabus for, say an upper level undergraduate class or a graduate class on either literary theory or cultural studies that, That might be just an option for folks to see how one way, among others, that you can apply, you know, 20th century continental philosophical figures to, you know, medieval sources from the distant past, you know, even as you're getting to see that same kind of thing with more contemporary literature. So I I hope it would be, you know, useful in in all of those contexts.
0: I think this kind of, you know, scholarly work often feels like, oh, it's just for other scholars. It's very theoretical. how would you use it for students? So I just I like to ask people how how they would envision their work being used. I think it can be helpful for for them. Like you said, you it sounded like you have specific colleagues in mind that like I hope they could use it for this course. And I think it's interesting to hear how people envision their work being used by students as well as their their scholarly colleagues.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, to wrap up here, um, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Uh, This book is from Medieval Institute Publications, um, which employs innovative and interdisciplinary approaches to what it has meant to be human throughout the ages. What does this book teach us about what it meant to be human in the French-speaking Middle Ages, as well as now?
1: With respect to the French-speaking Middle Ages, I think this book teaches us that folks in the centuries that I'm treating were just as attentive as we are now to questions of the sort of bodily precarity of, of human existence and the way in which wealth and material culture is wrapped up in that. Um, these are poems that, uh, are in my argument, ultimately trying to get us to see in a new way, how our, our bodily fragility invites us to make powerful choices about if we're going to share solidarity with other people or not. And, you know, I think that those concerns are obviously as topical and profoundly important in our time as they were in the 11 or 1200s. And you know, when we wake up every day and the headlines are filled with new stories about you know, migrants that have perished from efforts to you know, find amnesty in new countries um, and where you know, questions about paradise as you know, some imagined future of, of human beings are, are still on our minds in all kinds of ways. I think that these medieval poems haven't lost a shred of their relevance and you know, have an even kind of um, superficial level of, of connection to our time um, in the way that they're you know, inviting us to confront our bodily fragility and the kinds of hard ethical questions that that raises about how we're going to respond to people who are in the most fragile situations in and around us.
0: Well, it's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. Uh, just a reminder, the book uh, is Spiritual and Material Boundaries in Old French Verse, Contemplating the Walls of the Earthly Paradise by Jacob Abel. And that's out from Medieval Institute Publications and De DeGreuter. Thank you so much. It was a great time discussing the book I, and I uh, hope everybody else takes a look and enjoys it.
1: Thank you so much, Becky.
0: Thanks.